Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. Today, I won't have a law or passage of the day because we're going to look at several different key passages on the topic of theonomy and God's law. This is part three of our series on defending theonomy, and today I want to finish the topic as it relates to what Scripture has to say. Uh, I'm thinking of future episodes going into some historical examples uh, throughout Europe and England and and the United States regarding how uh, theonomy or how God's law played a role in forming uh, culture, government, things like that. So that's going to be more of a of a historical look at how things have have happened since since the rise of Christianity up until today. But Right now, in this series, I wanted to just purely look at Scripture. And so we're going to finish now uh, on our third episode, looking at God's Word. So last time, we looked at the idea of Christ's kingdom. We looked at it's an already-but-not-yet kingdom. And where his kingdom is, is where Jesus' will, God's will, is actively being done. Where God's people obey their king and bear the fruit of the Spirit. So it's where a husband loves his wife, as Christ loved the church. It's where a wife respects her husband and submits to him. It's where a business owner acts justly toward customers and workers, where workers provide honest labor, working unto the Lord, as Scripture says. Where teachers provide instruction, knowing that Jesus is Lord. Where pastors preach and teach the word faithfully. Where governors and kings make good laws, and punish evil. And that is the last sticking point, right? That last phrase, where governors and kings make good laws and punish evil. That will often get a reaction from folks who have a problem with that idea. And everyone is fine with all the previous examples of fruit bearing, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, as Paul would say, uh, up until that last point. And when you bring up the topic of, of making just laws and punishing evil, then the accusations come, sometimes, such as, uh, you can't legislate morality. Well, the problem with that phrase is that you can't avoid legislating morality. Every rule or every law is a moral statement. It values something. Now, that's true whether you are a business owner and you're making rules for your employees or parents making rules for your children, even if they are unbelieving children, uh, the parents are still valuing something and the child is expected to obey that. Um, So, and there's no way around it, even seatbelt laws, any law that you can think of where a person is obligated to do something or there will be consequences, is based on some idea of morality, some system of values, right? So you can't avoid legislating morality. The, questions, the question really is, what is your system of values? What are you going to legislate? You have to legislate something. We're not going to live in an anarchy like Israel did in the period of Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not good. Now, another argument against the idea of making good 
and godly laws would be Christians persuade. We don't coerce. We spread the kingdom by the word. We don't spread it by controlling the government. And of course, that's true. Christians do persuade. We don't coerce. But no one is arguing that we're going to save people by punishing them for their crimes. That's not the point. The government has a role to play in society. The church's job is to proclaim the gospel and to teach and disciple the nations. The government's job is to punish evil, and we're going to get into that passage from Romans 13 here shortly, but they have a specific job of maintaining the peace, punishing evil, praising the good, maintaining stability so that the church can function, so that other governments can function, so that families can function, right? And even as a parent, sometimes you make rules, and those rules aren't intended to save someone's soul. The rules are intended to maybe save someone's life or prevent someone from dying, right? You, know, you, might, you might tell your children, we, we always do this, or, you know, no running with a toothbrush in your mouth, no running with scissors, you know, all, whatever, the, whatever the case may be, right? And you're not saying that you're going to save that child's soul through that law. That's not spreading the gospel. I mean, it, there might be some interesting learning points if that happens, and there might be opportunity to share the gospel if, let's say, the child disobeys and is disciplined. But that law itself, that regulation, that rule that you gave the child had nothing to do with saving their soul. It had to do with preserving their life. And that's fine. And that's that's the way it should be. So, again, making these kinds of rules, we're not suggesting that the government is trying to save souls by making good laws. So the kingdom is spread by the gospel and through changed hearts. But if, by God's grace, as Scripture says, we want to pray for kings and all those in authority, if kings become Christians, if the rulers become believers, what should they do? How should they rule? Now, here's another you know, point that people bring up is that, well, Christian laws or good godly laws would make sense if everyone is a Christian. And that's true to a degree. But if you think about it, most Christians actually have unregenerate people under their authority. So this is regardless of your view of uh, infant baptism. But most Protestants would agree that there's no guarantee that all of their children are regenerate believers, actually indwelled by the Holy Spirit and saved from birth. So, what that means is for many, for most Christians, you go throughout your life having unbelieving, unregenerate people under your authority, whether your parents raising children or whether you're an employer that has a lot of workers. I don't, I don't imagine that Christian employ, employers are only hiring Christians. Now, maybe they are, or maybe they try to, but I think it would be kind of hard to do that. And you have teachers that have authority over students, and then you have citizens, and not all citizens are, are believers, of course. Now, ideally, we want those under our authority who aren't Christians, who aren't regenerate. We want them to love God and obey Him. But until that happens, we have to obey God. 
So as a father, I want my children to obey God. But until that happens, I'm still going to obey God. And that means I'm going to um, utilize God's word in how my wife and I run the household, how we make rules, right? And we want to follow scripture, and scripture tells us to discipline our children. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And then there's Proverbs 22, 15, folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So there's a sense in which uh, discipline, even if it doesn't necessarily save the child's soul, the rod of discipline drives foolishness and foolish thinking away from, from the child. So we do legislate morality at the end of the day, regardless, you know, as parents, as, as civil magistrates, you're going to always put in place rules that are based on what you value, okay? Even if that person doesn't love your rules or doesn't believe the same things that you believe, you're still going to do that because you're called to, to do that. And Christian parents are called to um, train up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, per Ephesians chapter 6. And other passages speak about how we're to exercise authority. So in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's not saying that there's no such thing as hierarchy or authority. No, there's a difference, though, between the way the Gentiles do it and the way that God does it. There's no doubt that Jesus is the king. He is the authority. He did not have any problem with people bowing down, worshiping him, and serving him. He had no problem with that. But he didn't boast or tyrannize those who were under his authority. He didn't use it to aggrandize himself. Okay? He didn't lord it over them. He is lord, but he didn't lord it over them as the Gentiles do. So the Gentiles, how Gentiles, unbelievers at in that context, how they handle it is I have authority and power, so I need to take advantage of it because I'm not going to have it forever. I need to use it while I can because if if I don't, then when the next guy gets power, he's going to take advantage of it and, and hurt me. So it's this very selfish, fearful, anxiety-based, um, idolatrous understanding of power clinging to power and and uh, trying to fight against anyone who even hints at threatening your power and using it as much as possible to gain as much advantage as possible while you still have it before you lose it. So that's essentially um, an unbelieving or ungodly way 
of wielding power. So Christian governors, Christian rulers must govern in a godly way. We talked about a couple episodes ago how Paul reasoned with the governors that had arrested him, and he was teaching them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So there's a desire for rulers to exercise self-control and to practice righteousness. And that's what you would expect from a godly Christian ruler. We want Christian rulers to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and we want all rulers to convert. We, and that's why we pray for them. We pray for the president and for the Supreme Court and Congress. We want them to convert and to submit to God. And then we would want them to obey God and how they wield authority. So we evangelize with the goal in mind. We evangelize with the goal of wanting to see fruit in keeping with repentance. And good laws like parenting or good business practices, can be attractive. So uh, I want to be clear here. Again, we're not saying that good laws save people's souls. But I'm sure many of us have heard of the phrase, we want to show people our faith by our works, not our words. And I don't actually entirely agree with that. You know, the gospel is proclaimed through words. You can't avoid that. You need to use words. But it should be accompanied by good works. They should see our good works and see something that attracts them in a way that they they see God's work in the world. So we see this in Matthew chapter 5. It's a salt and light passage, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there's a sense in which our good works... And this is regardless of our status in society or our job. So as employers or students or teachers or workers or parents, others who are not Christians should see our good behavior, our good works, that's fruit in accordance with repentance, and they would actually give glory to the Father in heaven. Another example of this and this has to do with God's laws, is Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I've mentioned this passage before, but it is Moses talking to Israel, and, and he's given them the law and the Ten Commandments. And here's what he says, Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them, in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there 
that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. So this passage is, is again, this bearing fruit, um, being a light to the nations. Israel's laws were to be attractive to the nations around them. And those nations would, would see and hear about these laws and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So there's something attractive about it. Ultimately, the point is, is that good laws in a society are also going to be attractive. And if we make laws that are godly, uh, laws based on God's word, there's going to be an attractive quality to them. Not necessarily a saving quality, okay? You're not going to save people by the laws, but they're going to be attracted to it, start asking questions, maybe trying to connect the dots as to where those laws came from, where that system of values and morality came from. Who is this God that values these things? Let's hear about him. This brings us to the main passage when we're talking about government and the role of government, and that is Romans 13, 1 through 7, which is one of the most often abused or misunderstood passages. But my goal here is to try to help um, help unpack it a little bit. So it's verses 1 through 7. Let's read it now. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This passage, like I said, often misunderstood. But the point here is, first, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's every person. Okay, now it's talking to the church, of course, but there is application beyond that. God is the one who appoints authority, and that's true. That's true. And there's no authority that's not from God. It's also true. And that authority can be a judgment or it can be a blessing, by the way. Um, God, just like with the nation of Israel, God gave them wicked rulers um, as as judgment and punishment for their idolatry, gave them over uh, to ty- tyranny. But he says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And that statement seems like just more of a descriptive statement. They are those things. They are God's servant. They are God's avenger, punishing evil. But what if they're not? Are they always that? Is everything that they do good? And the point here, and this is very much a parallel kind of description, um, as we see in Ephesians, when, when Paul talks about husbands and wives, right? Because he says that the husband is the head of the wife, right? So husbands are the heads of their wives, the heads of their households. They just are those things by definition, 
that's what husbands are. But we also know that not all husbands are acting like that. They're, you know, So you are something, but you're supposed to act a certain way. So when Paul talked about husbands, love your wives, the husband is the head of his wife, there is an obligation attached to that. There's a standard attached to that. What does it mean to be the head of your family and to live like that? What is that supposed to be? What are husbands supposed to do? So husbands are the leaders. And just like Jesus talked about, what does it mean to have authority? Well, the Gentiles lorded over people. They have the authority. They're just abusing it. There is a way to have authority and not abuse it. Okay. That doesn't mean that they don't have authority. They have it, regardless of whether you like it or not. They have the authority. They are in the position of authority. And the same thing for husbands and wives. Regardless of whether you like it or not, the husband is the leader of the home. Now, how he uses that is a different question. And similarly here, civil magistrates are deacons, servants of God. And that, that's the same word that's used for servant here is diakonos, deacon, where we get the word deacon from. So the civil government is the deacon of God, the avenger of God, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there is both a description here, but certainly an expectation, a standard is being applied. What are they supposed to do? They are God's deacon, and they are supposed to act like God's deacon. They are God's avenger, and they're supposed to act like God's avenger. And this comes, this passage comes in the context of Romans 12. And at the end of Romans 12, Paul is telling individual Christians, don't get revenge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's to avenge. And then he goes right into Romans 13. Guess what? One of the ways in which God avenges is through the civil magistrate. That's a legitimate way of God's vengeance. So there's a couple ways. When people think of God's vengeance... Again, they think of judgment, hailstones, fire, earthquakes, natural disasters, pestilence, you know, things like that. But, and that is true, but there is another way that God judges, and that's through the official magistrate, the ones who bear the sword. They are supposed to be the avengers of God. So going back to this passage of Romans 13, we see that the government is supposed to punish evil and, and praise or honor the good. And the question is, well, what's good and what's evil? If you keep reading, you get the answer. And this is Romans 13, 8 through 10. Here's what Paul says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So that passage, again, all the commandments, any other commandment is summarized in you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is, again, a citation of Leviticus 19. So what does love look like? Love looks like obeying the commandments. That's what love looks like. If someone asks you, well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Look at God's law. Look at the commandments. Any other commandment is summarized in that. It's supposed to be done out of love. 
But that's what love is, is treating another person the way that God has commanded you to treat them. And so we see the standard is quite clear what the law is and what the standard of good and evil is. And that same standard needs to be applied to parents, to employers, to teachers, and to governors, presidents, and other rulers. Someone might say, well, yeah, the law was to be a light and example to the pagan nations, kind of, sort of, but they weren't expected to, you know, those pagan nations were going to look at the law and, and they were going to see and say nice things about it, but they weren't expected to actually, you know, do it or or kind of copy it. Well, Leviticus 18 seems to hint otherwise because in Leviticus 18, after many rules and laws that God gave, particularly regarding sexual relations, here is what God tells Israel. He says this in verse 24 through 30. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So again, God was holding those nations accountable, and that's why he was driving them out, not because of Israel's righteousness, but because of those nations' wickedness. And even though those nations had not been given the Ten Commandments and the law of God, they still broke God's law. They had enough knowledge of what God expected of them that they were held accountable to it. Now, this leads us kind of in the section regarding natural law. If those pagan nations were judged by what they already knew, right, well, then they must have known enough. They don't need God's law, as someone might might argue. They have enough already. They have natural law. See, those pagan nations, they didn't need the law of God in the Bible. They didn't need scripture. They had what they needed. They just didn't obey it, but they had what they needed. And uh, there's a sense in which that is true, but we got to be careful when we say they had what they needed and they don't need God's word. And I want to read for you a passage that relates to this, and this is Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, Paul does talk about this. And this is what he says in Romans 2, 12 through 15. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse 
or even excuse them. So here, Paul is referring to, by the way, the same law. He's using the same word, you know, the same word law throughout the entire section. He's referring to the same thing. So, hey, there are those who have the law. And by that, he means the scriptures, the, the, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament at, at this time, as he's writing this to the church in Rome. There are those who have the law, okay? And they will be judged by it. They have it, particularly the Jews, and if they're not going to follow it, they're going to be judged by it. But then you have the Gentiles, and they are also sometimes doing the law. They don't have it, but by nature, they're doing what the law requires. So they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So it's, it's the same law, right? It's the same body of morality, of rules and of values. It's the same law. It's just that the, the, the people of Israel were given it explicitly. And the Gentiles, well, and everybody actually, was given it naturally. So you have both general revelation and special revelation. You have God's explicit law as revealed in scripture, and then you have God's law as revealed in nature. So I know that the phrase natural law is often used, and I think that term is abused and and overused. It's, It's divorced from its original context. So originally, you know, back in the old days, natural law was a recognition that God made the world to function a certain way. It was a law of nature's God, as our founding fathers would reference nature's God, the law of nature's God. And it was, a, it was to function a particular way for human flourishing. And that was to be the natural way of doing things. So it was obvious in, in nature, right? But since then, it's been divorced. The concept of natural law has been divorced from God, from any, any context of a creator. And nowadays, it's simply man's preferences, whatever whatever you, whatever is natural to you, go ahead and do. That's, that's your law. That's your truth. And what's happening today is that natural law is falling to the is-ought fallacy. It's a logical fallacy to say that something is a certain way and therefore it should be that way. Just because something is and does function a certain way doesn't mean it ought to be that way. And this was a logical fallacy that was uh, put forward by the uh, atheist philosopher David Hume uh, a couple hundred years ago. So, so simply, simply saying that just because you observe something functioning a certain way, that doesn't logically require that it's supposed to be that way. Okay, But when we take a look at that from a Christian perspective, we can agree that yes, God's law is revealed to everyone to a certain degree. And everyone is obligated to submit to it, right? And it's a blessing and a gracious thing that God explicitly gives his law to Israel and now to the whole world. And even scripture itself points us to look at nature. Just think of Proverbs 6, 6, which says, go to the ant, you sluggard. And it, it uses the example of the ants to describe what it means to work hard and be diligent. But it's funny, Scripture also uses the sluggard, the slug, as an example of slothfulness, foolishness, and laziness, and a a poor work ethic and basically stupidity, right? So you have two objects in nature, a slug and an ant. 
And there's other passages in Scripture uh, where even God says the ostrich is foolish. You know, she even she even you know tramples over her own children. And there's also wise creatures too. There's wise and foolish creatures, and 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 there's also harsh and and vicious creatures, and also very fearful creatures. So there's a there's a design going on here, but just because something is a certain way doesn't make it a good thing. The slug is used as an example of not good behavior. And so a person today should not look at a sloth or a slug and say, hey, that is, there are some good principles there that I can learn on how I'm supposed to behave. I should be lazy. You know, the sloth doesn't do much. The slug doesn't do much. I should be like that, right? Or other, you know, other things, you know, uh, lions sometimes eat their young. Not a problem, right? Not all animals mate for life. Wolves do, but other animals don't. So, hey, why not be polygamous? Why not just run around? Why have marriage? Most of the animals in the animal kingdom don't mate for life. So why should humans? You can't just pick and choose. There is wisdom, and God's law is revealed, but there's a, a right way to understand it and a wrong way, and and it's a gracious thing that God actually makes it very, very clear to us in the text that he's given us. So it's all one body of law. It's just God's law revealed in scripture, or God's law is revealed in nature. And if something is contrary to that body of law, even if it looks to be natural, quote-unquote, to someone or something, if it's contrary to God's word, it's not natural. It's probably a result of the fall. It's a result of sin entering the world. So we don't want it to be contrary to, to God's law. So bring it all in. Bring it in for landing here. What are, we, what are we to do? Well, we have God's law and written into us, given to us in Scripture. And we can use that as an example for our lives. And we should. We should draw forth the principles from that. The Ten Commandments were the constitution of Israel. Okay, those were that, that was their covenant. And all the other laws that are in there are case laws. They're just examples of how to apply um, the Ten Commandments. So one example is do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. That has to do with not being stingy and greedy, basically. Because the idea there is that you would muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain so that it can't eat anything. You're going to get every single ounce of, of production, of value out of this ox. And you are not going to let this ox eat any of the grain that you can sell. And it's a cruelty to the, to the laborer. And Paul applies this. The principle of this passage, of that law, is the person who's working should have a share and should be able to benefit while they're working from what they're working on right? And a good example would be if you are hired to to pick apples in an orchard in the heat of the day, right? The owner should have no problem if you get hungry and you, an apple falls on the ground or whatever and you want to take a snack and you eat a little bit of the apples while you're working for him. You should be allowed to do that. That's what it would mean. If the orchard owner were to say um, and prohibit you from touching an apple for yourself, all you can do is harvest. You may not touch to eat anything. Even if it falls to the ground, you may not eat of it. 
um, there would be a cruelty to say that and to punish people for that. And Paul, the apostle, pl- applies this to, uh, to paying your ministers. In, in 1 Corinthians, he mentions not muzzling an ox and that ministers should get paid for the work that they're doing ministering to the gospel. And it's a shame, really, when that doesn't happen. Um, and he even says that that law, Deuteronomy 25.4, was written for them, written for us as Christians. And so the principles still apply today. And even in Old Testament Israel, the law didn't just apply to ox. It would have applied to any beast of burden. It was a case law. It was an example. The same thing for Deuteronomy 22.8 with the parapet around your roof. The law requires you to put a wall or a barrier around the top of your roof so that no one falls and dies. And that principle simply applies to any other situation in which a life is at risk of falling and dying, okay, in a common area. An example would be fences around pools. Now, most people don't have um, rooftop decks, um, but if you did, you better have some kind of barrier that prevents people from easily falling off, right? That's what that law applies to. It applies to safety regulations. And so these are all principles, and they are case laws of the Ten Commandments, okay? They are examples of how the Ten Commandments are to be applied. They're examples of what it means to love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor means putting a barrier around your roof so that when your neighbors come over to dinner and spend time with you, they're not at risk of falling off and dying. Loving your neighbor is putting a fence around your pool so that when people walk through and children are playing, they don't fall in and drown. That's, that's what loving your neighbor means. Loving your neighbor means if they work for you, don't be so stingy that you don't let them enjoy any benefits from working for you aside the paycheck. Okay? Let them be able to enjoy as they are laboring. So... That is really what we're supposed to do as Christians in any area of life, whether it's parenting, business, or government. We need to make laws that make sense and that are in accordance with God's law and what God requires. So that is essentially a quick three-episode defense of what theonomy is. And hopefully it's helpful to you in that you'll be able to to think on these things and and perhaps apply them as well in your own discussions and in your own lives. So again, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions um, that you want to share with me or maybe some pushback or comments, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. Go on Facebook as well or Twitter, Instagram, and look for Governed by God or the GBG Podcast. Um, Please uh, share this episode with uh, friends, family, co-workers, Uh, all the thumbs up stars reviews all those things are very helpful to get this out to more folks so thank you again for tuning in and until next time take care and god bless